previously on Hacker Valley Red. In order to break something really well, you have to understand how it's built at the lowest possible level. And then you use that knowledge to understand where it might be weak. I would say there are some people that they will hack in order to make the world a better place. I mean, if someone hands me something and says, here's how you're supposed to use it. My first thought is, okay, that's how you want me to use it, but how could I use it in a different way? Axonius has crossed the chasm, the first company to solve the cybersecurity asset management problem. Gartner has recognized cyber asset attack surface management chasm as a category in their hype cycle for network security 2021 report. Axonius gives its customers a comprehensive, always up-to-date asset inventory, helps uncover security gaps, and automates as much of the manual remediation as you want. Take a look at Exonius and give your teams time back to work on the high-value cyber initiatives they were trained to do. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again and excited to continue the journey into a hacker's mind. In the studio this episode, we've brought in Lisa Forte. Lisa is a partner at Red Goat Cybersecurity and co-founded a movement called Respect and Security, which is a group of professionals that stand against abuse in the infosec industry. Lisa, thank you for taking the time out of your day and joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting. Lisa, I think you have one of the most exciting discussions that we're going to have on this season. But before we get to all of that, I would love for you to share a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. So my background is super strange in comparison to a lot of people in InfoSec. So I actually started, I trained as a lawyer, and then I worked in counter-piracy operations off the coast of Somalia, stopping pirates from getting on board sort of commercial vessels. I worked in counter-terrorism intelligence and then in one of the UK police cybercrime units and then founded my own company four years ago. And here I am. Sounds like you've done quite a bit here and there from law to working cybercrime. But what has been your favorite aspect? What was a story that led you to think like, oh, this is my favorite part and where I belong? You know what? Actually, it's it's the people that really make it. And I think for me, in all aspects of security that I have worked, the sort of camaraderie of the people who I've worked with have really made the experience interesting. So working with sort of ex-Royal Marines when I was working in counter-piracy operations was just a really fun kind of environment to be in. And they were hilarious people to work with. So I think the people really make any job sort of, it can be as interesting as you like, but I think the people really make it. I completely agree about people really make it. We often hear about people being the weakest link, whether it's through their security awareness or making a mistake in the world. But what we're about to talk about here is a little different. These people are coerced into becoming insider threats. Their minds get hacked. And you hear about this in espionage. You hear about this at the nation state level, but I'm sure it happens in other levels as well. Could you tell us a little bit about your history about this insider threat vector? 
So I think one of the best places to start is actually really recently, MI5, which is one of the British intelligence agencies, sort of made an announcement that they were so concerned about the situation with fake social media accounts being used to manipulate people into handing over sensitive information. They claimed that over 10,000 Britons had been socially manipulated or socially engineered in this way. And they were so concerned that they actually launched a campaign in the UK called Think Before You Link to try and encourage people to think about who they're connecting with online because the risk had become so grave. And that same statistic has been echoed across Europe, in France, in Germany, in Italy. And obviously the problem is far, far greater in the US because you guys create an absolute load of IP, loads of innovation comes out of the US. And there's lots of people who'd be very, very interested in bypassing the development that you have to put into products and into technology by stealing it. Let's unpack that a bit. When we talk about insider threat, what exactly is that definition for you? Insider threat can be, it's sort of been generalized, I suppose. It can basically be cut down into two categories. Um, Unintentional people. So these are people who might click on phishing links, give out information in like vishing calls, things like that, or intentional. And these are people who know that there are security rules in place that they shouldn't violate and then intentionally violate those rules. And that might be because they're handing information to someone who they think they're in love with online, or it may be that they're taking it to sell themselves as sort of theft kind of a, a sort of level attack. But it's it's basically that breakdown of people who intentionally compromise security versus people who maybe just make a mistake. So we would love to hear a story of someone that was just a regular employee and they were coerced into doing one of these operations. Well, is there a story that you could share that really highlights how big of an issue this is? Funnily enough, this gentleman, and I'll obfuscate all the names in this for obvious reasons, basically he met this woman online. He met her on LinkedIn, actually. And they were sort of conversing over something he'd posted, which was sort of scientific research that he'd posted. And she'd commented with a question And he'd sort of decided to direct message her. And then they'd had this kind of back and forth. And they ended up exchanging numbers. And it sort of developed from like a friendship into a more romantic relationship, shall we say. And then over time, she was sort of asking him lots and lots of questions about his job and showed an interest, which, you know, he was probably flattered by, right? You know, it's, it's as human beings, we we love it when people show an interest in us. So he would sort of talk about his job and what he was doing, and she would get him to share data sets and share sort of screenshots and photographs of diagrams and things he was working on. And this went on for ages, and he passed lots and lots of information to her because he thought she was his romantic partner and interested in all these different aspects of his job. And they would have discussions about it, and he would talk about the research that the company was doing, all of which was sensitive all of which he knew he shouldn't share. And it culminated in her actually managing to convince him to essentially download malware onto a laboratory computer. And he didn't realize it was malware. He thought he was downloading a dancing video that she'd shared of her sort of dance routine. Um, And, you know, this whole process lasted a long time. 
And even when the security team at the company kind of identified this and thought, oh, my God, this is horrendous, realized the extent of it, he still truly believed it was all some big misunderstanding and his beloved partner was innocent in all this. And he he didn't twig for quite some time that the whole thing was actually fake because they were just, somebody was behind this personality who got him to hand over, you know, dumps of really quite sensitive data because he thought he was in love with her. And it's very easy for us sitting here today to look at that and go, well, what an idiot. But this guy was a scientist. He was a really, really intelligent individual. And I think it's it's very easy to say these people are stupid and naive. But what you haven't been subjected to is the rapport building and the slow and gentle friendship that grows into something. So it's very easy to say, I wouldn't fall for that. But I'm pretty sure he would have said that as well. Right. There is an incredible amount of stories that sound very similar to that. We had Chris Parker on the podcast who really captures a lot of these different stories. And quite often what you find is that the people genuinely care about these attackers, about these bad hackers. They end up even going through this investigation and they're constantly asking, is that person okay? Because I care about this person. So what really the attackers are really playing on is this human need to be connected to other people. What have you seen from the attacker standpoint? Is there any empathy there? Before we've talked about empathy not really being there because there is a disconnection of what they're trying to do. They they almost justify the work that they're doing. They justify whether it's for their country, whether it's for money, for survival. They justify the thing that they do to these people, but it's really heartbreaking for the folks that are on the other side. Is there anything that you've learned going through some of these attacks that might not be quite evident when you first talk about it? From an attacker's perspective, I haven't seen any sort of demonstrable evidence that they have empathy or feel remorse in any capacity. There's never been any messages sort of being apologetic, for instance, or anything that would give you a suspicion that perhaps they knew what they had done. And I think a lot of that is twofold. Firstly, I'm not convinced that these individuals are necessarily just one person. They create a a LinkedIn profile, for instance, but there's no way of knowing whether that's one attacker sitting behind that LinkedIn profile or several who use it. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think is that because they are detached from this individual, they haven't met them, they haven't spent physical contact with this person. I think there is an ability for attackers to sort of see it as disconnected. And one of my police friends said to me that uh, they arrested somebody um, from a a sort of different cyber offence. This individual could not see that the damage he had caused was akin to that of mugging someone on the street. And he just could not see the, the parallels at all. Yet, obviously, we know it has a huge effect on the individuals. I mean, think about the story I just told. That person essentially went through the realisation that he'd been dumped, essentially, in his mind, right? Because he had a relationship and now that relationship's ended, which we all have been in that situation, which is horrific in itself. And then on top of that, the person is fake and he was conned, which is even worse. 
And then on top of that, they got him to compromise his company's security and embarrass him on a professional level. So when you then mount that all up, the consequences must be absolutely horrendous for the victim. One of the things I also wanted to touch on is the stories behind social engineering insider threat that we don't get to hear about. A lot of the times we hear about insider threats and social engineering when a company has been compromised and money has been stolen, data has been stolen, but we don't really get to hear about the plan of attack that companies take and some of the some of the attacks that were prevented. Do you have any stories that you can share about how you help companies plan and prevent insider threat and social engineering? So we we talk a lot with clients about insider threat and how we can mitigate the risks of that. One of the really interesting things with a lot of insider threats is especially in things such as theft and fraud, which are two sort of specific types of insider threat attack. You actually see a lot of social engineering between the insiders. So for example, in fraud and theft, US CERT has shown that in a lot of cases, the insider will actually recruit other people within the company to help them steal information or commit fraud, because actually in larger numbers, it's more effective. So it actually becomes quite an interesting problem and a kind of a fusion of insider threat and social engineering because they kind of go hand in hand. So I think the problem that you have with insider threat from a company perspective is, as a topic, it's hugely controversial. As a topic, we see it as the measures that we can put in place to stop it can very quickly become draconian and can very quickly start to look like the Stasi marching around your company. So it's very delicate in terms of how you handle it. And I think a lot of it is actually to do with the culture that you foster within your company. Because if employees are happy, and if you think about a job that where you loved and you thought it was brilliant and you were supported and you were encouraged and everyone was nice to you and it was a really lovely environment, the chances of you thinking, well, I'm going to steal information or this person's asking me to steal information for money, so I'm going to do it, are really low. Whereas if you think about a job that you hated or where people were you know, horrible to you and you, you dreaded going into work each day, that mountain is much lower. And so the tipping point for you to decide to do something like that becomes much closer. So what are some of the ideological strategies that attackers take? Because in the story you shared about the gentleman, he was definitely tricked into downloading this application and giving access to the attacker. But to your point about people that are disgruntled and they don't really like their employer, I'm sure that they're just as much of a target as the unwitting to be able to do some of these attacks. What are some of the the tricks that the attacker uses in order to figure out who those people are first? And then what do they say once they have that open dialogue with that person? Sometimes I don't even think they need tricks. I mean, if you if you browse Twitter or LinkedIn, you'll actually see a lot of people who post things that are really negative about their job. So actually, you could probably just from simple OSINT identify people who are perhaps not very happy. But more crucially, I think from an attacker's perspective, the key people to go after are the people with access to that sensitive information. So we're talking about coders, developers, scientists, researchers, engineers, 
people who are going to have access to intellectual property, research and development, things like this that are, you know, really commercially sensitive information. They are going to be your targets. And then I think in terms of the sort of kill chain, I suppose, of how they would go about it, often you'll notice that the the first contact that they make with their target is usually really gentle. So it's not like what I would call sort of fast and dirty social engineering, where you send a phishing email and it's really obvious early on. Um, It's usually very sort of gentle, non-committal, kind of friendly and the the whole sort of goal behind it is to build that rapport up so that you can test them and ask them for information. So I often say to people, you know, if you look at a conversation that you have with a genuine friend, go onto your WhatsApp or something like that and look at the conversation, you will notice that it's very back and forth, probably 50-50. The sorts of questions they ask you about your job are probably more like, oh, how's work going? as opposed to tell me the detail of what you're working on. So if you start to look at those conversations and use that as your baseline, anything that's largely different from that should be a red flag. That's not to say it's definitely nefarious, but it should be a red flag. It's almost like it's starting to blend together with things that you see on social media or even within your email a lot of a lot of us will get a lot of spam, whether it's from sales and marketing or just from the attacker. And it's all starting to feel to me like it's blending together. Would you say that it's been the same for you? Yeah. And I think the big, big problem that we have is fake social media accounts. So for example, Facebook claimed that in the early part of 2020, they took down something like 4.3 billion fake accounts just in the first few months of that year. In that same period of time, LinkedIn say they took down 7.5 million and Twitter estimate that 5 to 15% of their user base is our fake accounts. So when you look at the problem, the, the number of accounts that are not necessarily genuine uh, or owned by who they say they are owned by, you can see how easily it is for anybody to get hold of us. I mean, I think the, the key thing really is back in the day, If you were inside a threat, you would have to walk into your organization, find the physical file, photocopy it, put it into a rucksack of some description, get on a plane, fly to, I don't know, China or wherever, and then find someone to sell it to. Now, you can take a photo on your mobile phone, you can send it on WhatsApp or LinkedIn straight away to anybody in the world. So... The opportunities are much greater and the opportunity for someone to get caught is much smaller, which means you see a growth industry. When you think about these types of attacks, a lot of the time you think about them from that that espionage standpoint, like we were speaking about. I think about people becoming traitors to their country in whatever country that is. But I also think that there's definitely a huge fiscal aspect to this as well. It could be for money. It could be for intellectual property theft. Are you seeing more of these attacks from the espionage and trying to get information? Or do you also see a mix of folks that are financially uh, motivated? I would say largely it's financially motivated. Think about it. If you're developing a new technology or a new piece of software or a new drug or a new vaccine, as we've seen, that's incredibly valuable and you've sunk a lot of cost and a lot of time into the research and development. 
if I come along and I think, well, I can socially engineer one of your scientists, get them to pass me that information, I've just bypassed that whole process. I might even be able to get to market with that product before you. And so for that reason, it's sort of that commercially sensitive information that people are after from a financial perspective, because it has a lot of value. You know, even for attackers, they can sell it to competitors for a huge amount of money because it provides such a huge advantage from a commercial aspect. On that same point, do you ever see or investigate hacktivism acts? So like instead of someone just being financially motivated, they're wanting to stop a company from doing something or they're trying to spread an idea. Have you seen that from an insider threat perspective? Not so much. I've mainly seen it from a sort of what I would call corporate espionage perspective. And it's usually the sort of main perpetrator seems to be Chinese businesses, Chinese companies located in China going after United States technology by and large. It does happen elsewhere as well. But the main flow of information seems to be between those two countries for obvious reasons. What are some of the things that you've learned over this entire career of dealing with the psychology of these attackers and also on the victim side as well? Is there anything about humanity or anything about the work that you do that you've taken into your personal life? And is there a story to that? So I guess there's kind of two things, neither of which are particularly uplifting, I have to warn you. When I first came into cyber, I was probably pretty naive in the sense that I sort of believed that there would be some sort of, I guess, areas that were off limits to attackers. So hospitals, for instance, care homes, you know, charities, potentially, places like that, that hackers just wouldn't go for. I've since realized, especially over the pandemic, that that's very much not the case. And that actually, anything seems to be fair game, which is quite I suppose depressing. I preferred my naive outlook on uh, on life, I think. I also think that the, the danger with all of these things is you hear so many stories, you know, you hear so many stories of insider threat, you hear so many stories of like romance fraud and social engineering, that it's very difficult to not allow it to impact your personal life and not allow it to, I guess, impact how easily you trust people. And that's not always a good thing in life, uh, which I'm learning slowly. So I think it is one of those things. And I think the security community generally, we become a little bit obsessed with risk assessing everyone we come into contact with. And I'm not sure that always leaves us better off. On the point of leaving us better off, I also wanted to take a few to talk about respect and security. Uh, Can you describe what that movement is and how did you come to find that? Respecting security is essentially a group of individuals who got together to try and stamp out harassment and abuse in the infosec or cyberspace. And this is about in our industry, in our profession. And what really triggered it was there was a lot of people, myself included, who suffered a huge amount of trolling, a huge amount of abuse online. I personally suffered some stalking, which was incredibly unpleasant, all perpetrated by people in our industry, all victimizing people in our industry. And we got together and we just thought, you know, enough's enough. We have to do something about this. The cybersecurity community seems to have a particularly bad problem with this situation. 
And we've got to take a stand to try and make this better. So we founded Respect and Security, which is a totally voluntary organization that aims to help holding people accountable. And the way we do that is we ask companies to take the pledge. And let's say my company takes the pledge, one of my employees abuses you online. You can contact me as their employer and say, this is what happened. And then I can go and investigate it. So it just provides people with a route to address bad behavior that happens online and hopefully gets people thinking about their behavior a little bit because we've all seen Twitter pylons that have happened that have maybe ended up in the doxing of somebody or chasing somebody off Twitter. And we're all adults and I think we have to start behaving more respectfully towards people and having disagreements on issues, that's completely healthy and fine. But always maintaining that professionalism and that respect for people as individuals. Speaking of witting and unwitting, I'm sure there are people that have been disrespectful, whether it's in social media or even in the workplace. They didn't even know they were being disrespectful. There was ignorance on their part. What is that piece of advice that you would have for somebody that needs to reevaluate their behavior and be a safe and supportive employee in whatever they're doing? So I've had a couple of people who have said things that I've taken really personally and they genuinely, I don't think, believed I would. And they came forward and sent me a message and just apologized. And then that was fine. So I think it's about, you know, learning progressively about things. But generally, respect and security, we, you know, we say there is a gray area. There is a gray area of what's harassment and what's banter and what's funny and what's not. But the amount of abuse that men and women and every possible gender you can imagine suffers is so grave and so serious and so obvious that actually we don't even need to go near the gray area to make a difference. You know, sending nude photos on LinkedIn is clearly not okay. So we're trying to challenge the really obvious, really serious abusive behaviors. And if we can just get rid of those, we'll have made the industry much better. Before I get to the the golden question that I think would be impactful for everybody that's listening to this podcast, I'd love to share a personal story. This isn't a security story. This is just a story about how I unwittingly got tricked into believing this person was real. And I had real feelings behind it. My roommate had begun talking to this woman on MySpace. This is back when MySpace was there before Facebook. And he developed a relationship and he introduced me to her and we would all talk together about hanging out together. And she was this, you know, extravagant model that had a lot of money and she was talking about flying us out. And this is me, poor college student, Chris, that barely had enough money to eat. And here there is this, this woman that seems super friendly and exciting and wanting to, to provide for me to be able to have cool experiences that I wouldn't otherwise be able to have. Fast forward three months or so and things started to get a little weird and we were kind of wondering like, why is the delay going on? Long story short, what happened was there was a woman that he was talking to before and in some way she felt snubbed because he stopped talking to her. So she created this other persona in order to talk to him and his friends in order to get back at him for snubbing her. And 
it was hurtful for a couple of reasons because I genuinely thought this person was a friend. And I genuinely thought that I was going to get to experience some different things while I was at college. But it makes you second guess when you're building that relationship with somebody across the pond or someone across the internet because you're not quite sure who they are at their core. They could be kind of real. They could be completely fabricated. What is that one piece of advice that you would have for those folks that have been jaded before and they are distrustful? People in cybersecurity are genuinely skeptics at everything, whether it's data or people. How can we develop genuine relationships with other people while staying safe in this crazy world that we live in? It's horrible and it's really difficult. And I always say to people, the key is to spot something's not right before the rapport building has started. So before, as you, as in your story, before you start feeling this affinity or liking for this individual, once that has started, once you start having those feelings, it will be too late. You won't be able to recognize the relationship for what it is. We know this. Psychologists have shown this. So it's very key to notice sort of abnormalities in the conversation before it gets to that stage. That's kind of easier said than done, though, right? And I think for a lot of people who have been through it, it's really damaging. It's really, really difficult. I think it's about being cautious. One thing that's happened to me that uh, I've learned lessons from is I've met people on Twitter and they seem like great people, people who are you know, committed to their job that I have a connection with, have a laugh with, but have never spoken to or really interacted with or, or really know on any level. And I've, you know, tweeted, you should follow this person. He's great or she's wonderful. Go follow them. And it's later transpired that one particular individual was actually a serial sexual abuser of women, of young women in the industry. And I'd promoted him and said, go follow him. He's brilliant. Mm -hmm. So I think there is this real danger of promoting people you do not know and encouraging young people or anybody to go follow and interact with that person. You know, if you do that, you are endorsing that person. So if you're happy to put your name to it, go for it. But it's always, I think you've just got to be so careful. And I think that's part of the problem of our industry. There's a great side to it because we all connect online. We have great communities on Discord and, you know, Twitter and all the social platforms. The downside to that is we're heavily overexposed to being abused in that capacity. So I think it's very, very difficult and you have to be quite cautious. But I guess it's that sort of trust but verify sort of saying, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Trust but verify. Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with us about a hacked mind. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you, all the incredible research and things that you do on your end, what are the best ways that people can do that? My Twitter, which is at Lisa Forte UK. I'm also on LinkedIn, Lisa Forte. And I blog on my red website, which is red-goat.com. Excellent. We'll be sure to drop those links in the show notes. Thanks again, Lisa, for joining us. And we'll see everyone next time. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.